I think of companies as having two products. They have a product for their customers. And if they have a great product and a great go-to-market, they'll pull customers in and retain them. The second product they have is their culture. And you want to make that culture unique relative to the competition and uniquely valuable to your employees. And if you can do that, it'll be like a magnet that will pull in employees. So that's kind of how we think about culture. I'm Dan murray Serta, and this is Secret Leaders. We uncover the raw personal stories of the world's greatest business people, the key turning points, biggest challenges, and most valuable lessons from their journeys, so you'll get inspiration and tangible ideas to succeed at life. Today's Secret Leader is the CEO and founder of the software behemoth HubSpot and is a bit of an inbound marketing legend. So if you run a B2B company, there's a pretty good chance you're already a customer of or you've looked at becoming one of HubSpot already. Now, he co-founded the company in 2006 and has grown it to annual revenues of over half a billion dollars, 3,000 employees, 70,000 plus customers across 100 countries. I don't need to do the PR spin for him. He'll get onto that later. But he has also co-authored two books on marketing, Inbound Marketing, Get Found Using Google Social Media and Blogs with HubSpot co-founder Dharmesh Shah, and Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, what every business can learn from the most iconic band in history. Obviously, he is forgetting the Beatles, but we will... We will just pass that up right now. Uh, He's also proud to have been named one of the best CEOs for diversity and best CEOs for women in 2018 before that was even a trendy thing to do in tech. So today, whilst we're going to hear about the journey of building one of the biggest names in SaaS, we're also going to focus on some of his insights on an essential topic of every business owner that we all need to know, which is how to nail customer experience. So before we get into all of that, firstly, welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you for having me, Dan. This is great. Okay, Brian. So we always kick off with a quick fire round. So here we go. Sales or marketing? Smarketing. Of course. Uh, Not one to make a quick decision then. Books or music? Music. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Apple or Android? Apple. Trump or Pence? Just kidding. (laughs) Inbound marketing. Inbound marketing or customer experience? customer experience. Oh, wow. I actually didn't think you were going to go there, but it's on brand for the episode. So we appreciate it. All right. Now that we've got those very tough questions out of the way, it's time to get on with the actual show. So um, if I've done my reading correctly, you were born in Boston, Massachusetts. So presumably you were always destined for MIT in some capacity. Is that what it's like when you grow up in Boston? What was your upbringing like? I don't think, I don't know if that's what it's like. I would say I had a very like normal, nothing special upbringing. The thing about my upbringing is we had a lot of neighbors that worked at big tech companies like, these are dinosaur companies now, but digital equipment and Wang and my father worked for BBN, lots of that around. I always thought I would join a tech company. I never thought I would start one. And before you started HubSpot, what were you actually doing? Like what was, what was it that suddenly inspired you into a sales and marketing engine machine. Yeah, I kind of, I grew up in sales and marketing through my career. And, and the thing that directly led to HubSpot was I was an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm here in Boston. They'd hired me to go and work with their portfolio companies and help them think about how do we grow these little startups and turn them into big companies. And I spent a lot of time with them and they all kind of had the same growth playbook. They were going to hire inside sales reps in cold call. They were going to buy a big list and spam people. They're going to do a lot of advertising, hire the expensive PR firm and uh, do the big trade show. It was like, those are the five plays. I just assumed they were doing them wrong because those are the plays I kind of grew up with. But the more I dug into it, the more I noticed that those places just don't work anymore. The humans, you, me, all the listeners here, we're kind of immune to marketing. We're sick and tired of being marketed to. And we're terrific at blocking it out with spam protection, ad blocker, caller ID. Back in the day, you had things like DVRs. Like It just had become really hard to market. And so that was kind of the you know, spark that got us going on this idea of, you know, you got to change the way you market to match the way humans actually live and work and buy. And so how do you market in Google? How do you market in the blogosphere? How do you market inside of social media? How do you create content and pull people in? That's how that inbound marketing versus outbound marketing, that new versus old 
kind of started emerging in our heads that eventually led to HubSpot. And how did this how did this really start? What was the trigger? And can you take us from the trigger to actually setting up shop and really feeling like this is it, we're doing it? There, there was kind of two triggers. The first was what I just talked about this, like, oh, crap, marketing is yeah. broken. I don't know how to market anymore. His aha, that was kind of the sister aha, was he was, he was in business school and he blogged his way through business school. And anytime he had an interesting lecture, heard something interesting, he'd write a blog article about it. Very clever at search engine optimization. Very clever at early social media marketing. So back then it was digging Reddit. It wasn't really Facebook and totally changed since then. And I was looking on Alexa, ye old Alexa before the modern Alexa, at how many visitors he was getting to his crappy little blog that he spent no money on versus my wealthy venture-backed startups with lots of talent. and everything. He had way more interest in his crap blog than any of my wealthy venture-backed startups. So I, I grew interested in it. And that's where we started talking about, oh, he's doing inbound, we're doing outbound. That was that dichotomy. Another aha we had at the time, it had never been a better time to be a startup. And it, it just, no one knew. And you, your success was much more about the width of your brain in the width of your wallet, kind of for the first time in history. And so that was another kind of aha, like, oh, there's a change going on in marketing. There's also a shift going on in the power dynamics of how you grow, and it's becoming easier to grow, not harder to grow. Sorry, I'm ranting now, Dan. But the third aha we like had <laughs> was the advertising industry was changing. It used to be that if you wanted to get attention, you would buy a little ad you know, inside of a newspaper or magazine. You'd buy a little ad on television. You'd buy a little ad on the radio, and that was expensive. If you wanted to start your own newspaper, wow, that was expensive. You had to buy printing presses and ink and hire reporters. Like, wow. If you wanted to start your own TV station, wow, you needed to buy bandwidth. And like, it was a lot of work. Same thing with a radio station. But something had changed. And what had changed was the cost to start a newspaper had dropped, the cost to start a TV station had dropped, the cost to start a radio station had dropped. And we said, let's stop advertising on other people's assets. Let's create our own assets and market our own products ourselves. So all those things was like a soup that we were swimming in. And that was inbound. Then, Dan, well, let's try to do it. So we started yelling about inbound. You got to move from inbound to outbound. And then we tried to do it. And it was hard. You had to put in like this complicated open source, freaking content management system, this complicated CRM and email marketing and SEO consultants. It just got complicated. All right, let's build HubSpot, which is kind of a modern system to help people deal with all this stuff and take advantage of and grow. That's sort of how it all kind of came together. And it was over the course of about nine months that sort of soup turned into something delicious. And uh, like any soup, you've got to obviously keep seasoning it the whole time. So where were you seasoning your soup from? So I guess in this respect, we're talking about people and funding. So what was what was the first couple of years of, of HubSpot like to keep that soup delicious, to run with your analogy? I would say the soup, and this continues today, it's not just the first couple of years, like would add a couple of spices and it'd be like, ah. The soup got worse. Like that was too much salt. And then keep cooking in a while and add a couple more things. Oh, now it tastes much better. There was very much this process of make it a little worse. But in the process of making it worse, you make it a lot better. There's this one step back, two steps forward. Frankly, that's HubSpot today. And I think one of the things that has helped Darmesh and I is we're willing to, well, oftentimes that one step back is self-inflicted, is, is an unforced error that we've made, put the wrong spice in. But many times we force that one step back on ourselves, like, oh, let's take a step back so we can take that two or three steps forward. Let's take a risk here. And we've done that. We have an appetite to do that type of thing. Let's just say that. What would you say is the worst tasting spice that you remember in recent history? We just had a series of unforced errors in Q1 of 2019 that really set us back at that moment and really had us reevaluate how we run our company, what our operating system looks like, and really was a wake-up call for us to really change the way we build products and run the company. One thing about HubSpot that I think we're good at, we make too many mistakes, 
but we, we never make the same mistake twice, I would say that. We learn from our mistakes. How have you built the culture around that kind of insight? One thing we do that's been super helpful, and we started doing it very early in HubSpot, was we have a deck that comes out once a, once a month. It's got about 100 slides in it. And each slide in the deck kind of corresponds, Dan, to an unforced error we made. So I'll give you an example. When we fell behind on recruiting and support, that was an unforced error. What we weren't looking at was the number of support people we had, the tenure of those support people, the customer growth and retention characteristics and the new product releases coming down the road, all of those kind of mixed together in a, you know, a little bit of a complicated formula. And we can predict how much load there will be on support. So the load was going up because we were releasing new products and we had missed our headcount goals. So it was a combination that really caused a lot of problems for us. So there's a slide in the deck that looks at all those factors and prevents us from making that exact same mistake again. So it looks, for example, at how many support reps do we have? What's the tenure mix of those support reps? What's the product release schedule coming for the next X number of months? So we can make sure we stay on track and you know, we can keep our wait time under a minute, basically. That's our goal. And I mean, presumably all this stuff is, you know, table stakes and like becomes a logical process you understand when you're sitting in your office and offices. However, with a remote culture that you probably had to uh, have forced on you during COVID, I guess my questions are, how have you found that change to be culturally for you personally and how it's been for the company culturally? Um, what you've learned throughout that process about leadership? We were heading towards remote before this happened. Remote was our third biggest office. And so we weren't prepared, but we were, you know, we weren't totally flat footed on it. I would say before this started, one of the things I learned about remote was for my team, you know, I have eight direct reports. I was starting to hire people in other locations. So I hired a chief customer officer in San Francisco. I'm based here in uh, Boston. And what I had noticed when she started was, you know, if there were eight of us, seven of us in the room and one on Zoom, it's just tough for her to get in that darn conversation. And you're kind of out there and you're just not in the flow of the conversation. So I said, all right, the best practice here is if any one person is on Zoom in the call, we're all on Zoom. So I started just either working from home or working from my desk and Zooming into my staff meetings or whatnot. So the way I was headed with my meetings basically was my team, my own team, it's remote. Once a quarter, we'll all get together for a week and work through our quarterly business reviews, work on whatever we have to reconnect with each other. So I, I was personally headed that way. I would say this has hit HubSpot in different ways. Like there's certain people inside of HubSpot that have become way more productive. I personally have become way more productive. I don't have a bunch of kids running around that have to homeschool. Um, I have plenty of space. I have decent internet. You know, let's say you're, you're a single dad with three little kids that you have to basically homeschool right now and you have to do your job. Like, well, you're obviously going to be a lot less productive right now. So I think one of my lessons is just there's a time to be tough and a time to be empathetic. This is like over-index on empathetic for everyone these days. I'll tell you, one other thing I've learned through all this stuff, Dan, is I sort of have two modes. I have a peacetime mode when things are going along and decisions will take a lot of time and I'll let them bubble up to the organization or whatnot. And they have kind of a wartime mode. We're kind of in wartime now between Black Lives Matter and between the social issues going on and between COVID and the economy and all this stuff going on is a much more decisive, much quicker decisions, much more top down. I'm hoping that backs off to a, a more peacetime mode soon. But my way I lead the team has changed. I'm also a lot more transparent. I feel like for better or worse, your employees want to hear from you during times of crisis. Even if it's you're telling them terrible news, they'd rather just hear it straight. And so I do a lot more AMAs with the company. I do a lot more Slack postings with the whole company. I do a lot more wiki posts. I'm much more visible and transparent these days. Those are some of the things that I've taken away from it. It's been challenging, super challenging. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously, you know, a great uh, trait of uh, fantastic leaders is, is essentially prioritization. So there's an expression out there that everyone's probably heard of. Your startup's much more likely to die of overeating than starvation. 
is very much the case for HubSpot from day one till today. There's, there's an infinite number of ideas and there's only so many you can do. And ironic, this is gonna be the thing that's ironic that hurt my head a lot. The bigger we get, the more employees we get, the more capacity we get, the less we get done. <laughs> it's counterintuitive. And so uh, we are relatively ruthless prioritizers. I think one of the things that makes founders and, and myself included successful is they like to make decisions uh, they have a lot of ideas, they're creative, and maybe even a little impulsive. And one of the things I've had to learn to do is sort of tamp all that down and just let make decisions and let them run their course. Because decisions and processes take while, a while to get in place to really stick. And so I've had to resist the impulse to like jerk the steering wheel. And so right now is the time we're moving the steering wheel like this, trying to figure out next year. But once we get that nailed at the end of November, my, part of my job is just be like, no, 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 we're on a good path here, steering wheel straight. It's very hard to get us off that path. Whereas early in the startup years, I, during the year, I'd be swerving and people complained a lot about that. That was one of their big complaints about me as a CEO is too impulsive, you know, too many ideas, you know, got to stick to your priorities, got to stay no more basically. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, I'd love to talk to you about the thing that is essentially your favorite thing, which is customer experience. What absolutely amazing customer experience looks like, what we can learn about how to do brilliant customer service and customer experience end to end. So, you know, you've previously said the words, the quote, uh, customer experience is the number one thing that businesses should be focused on for success. So my question to you is how practically can businesses make that their top priority? And what are the most impactful things that they can do to make it their focus? When I was back in school, Dan, I had a professor, an entrepreneurship professor, and the professor used to say, don't even bother starting your company unless your product is 10 times better than the competition. I think the modern reality of startups is it's nearly impossible to build something 10 times better. Let's say you're a software entrepreneur. AWS makes it so easy to get started. Open source software makes it so easy to get it started. Everything you can rent instead of buy, you don't need office space. Like the startup cost and the cost to build something cool is really low. And so sustainable product advantage is harder and harder to get. That was a lot easier when you needed a lot of money 
and talent was super rare to build a software company, that has changed quite a bit. I think today, if I look at the companies that are doing really well and kind of came out of nowhere, it's when their customer experience is 10 times better than the competition. And for me, like this morning, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Like this morning I woke up and I put on my Warby Parker glasses and then I turned over and I turned on my phone and I listened to the Grateful Dead on Spotify. And then I fed my dog with food I got from the Chewy uh, Dog Company. And then I rode on my Peloton. I see you have a Peloton back there. I put on my Stitch Fix outfit. I think I'm thinking, Rich, I wanted to look really sharp for you today. And then I've been on Zoom and Slack all morning. All those companies that I do business with on a daily basis are pretty much startups. They started relatively recently. All those companies have replaced existing vendors in my lives. And it's not so much that their product is 10 times better. The experience they create is 10 times better around it. The business model is disrupted. I think that's what's going on in today's day and age is you're seeing these companies emerge that aren't just product disruptors, they're, pro they're experience disruptors. And people have to worry just as much about product market fit as experience market fit. And the disruption could happen more in the experience than on the product side. How easy do you think it practically is for businesses to change and put that at their heart and center? This is a good expression, never waste a good crisis. We're just seeing with our customers that they're digging in, uh, digitizing the end-to-end -end experience, transforming their experience. You know, let your prospects and customers engage with you 24 by seven. You know, really invest in your website, really invest in chat, really invest in a knowledge base, make sure all that stuff is visible inside of Google and lean into enabling that customer to have a lower friction engagement with you. Make your pricing super transparent, enable people to buy off your website, uh, lean into content marketing. All of those plays are taking the gatekeepers way, enabling you to deal directly with your customers. So who does customer experience really well in your opinion? Yeah, these companies we were just talking about do it really well. I think Peloton does it exceptionally well. They've thought about each point in that experience. They make it, and you get a kind of a complicated device in your background there, that Peloton. They ship it yeah. to you. It's pretty straightforward the way they do it and clean. They combine software and, and, uh, and hardware in a really unique way. They've created community in a really unique way. I think they're really quite good at it. But all of those companies I mentioned, like Chewy Dog Food is really good at it. Spotify is really good at it. Warby Parker is good at it. These direct-to-consumer brands have, are all quite good at disrupting the way people buy and making it so easy and, and cranking that word of mouth. They're all quite good at it. So who do you think does it badly? And what does that look like to you in 2020? Most of the enterprise software industry does it quite poorly. Yeah, it's an industry I grew up in, like, for example, pricing pages, you go to a pricing page and it's so complicated that no normal human could figure it out. And a bunch of it says, call us to get a quote. And that just like, that just doesn't work in today's day and age. Much of the information on their website is there, but a lot of the really important information, the sales reps kind of keep in their, they keep in the sales organization's pocket. So you, you have to engage with that sales rep to get that information. Most of them, you have to buy something before you can use it. They don't lean hard into like an easy to use trial, really lean hard into premium. That's an industry that's really kind of stuck in the 90s in terms of the go-to-market model. And in terms of um, like HubSpot culture, so I read that in the early days, you didn't talk about culture like most startups. You actually found culture quite an uninspiring topic and famously said, please, can we never have a chief people officer? And what have you learned about saying things like that that will follow you around forever now that you've actually hired a chief people officer and uh, really think the culture is important? Talk to us about that. Uh, this is true. Things do follow you around forever. Here's what I'd say about culture, though. First two years of that, it was a dirty word. Don't even bring it up. It's just BS. You can't, if you can't measure it, it's BS. And then I joined a CEO group early on in HubSpot which I'm on a different CEO group now. I find them very helpful. There's no school for CEOs. So a group of other CEOs is helpful. And in the CEO group. Yeah, I do want to. Uh, they're amazing. Yeah, great. Yeah. Even just for stress relief, they're, they're great. I sat next to a CEO that I really admired, a guy named Colin Engel, who started the Roomba like robot vacuum cleaner company. And he's a much bigger company than I was at the time. And I really admired him. And I had kind of a man crush on him. And I showed up for my first meeting and the topic for the all day meeting was culture. I thought this is a bunch of bull crap. Like I don't care about culture. It's a waste of time. And at the coffee break, 
I was chatting with him and he called me on it. He said, I can tell you're not interested in this topic. He said, culture is how people make decisions when you're not in the room. Culture is how you scale, Brian. So, okay. And then I got engaged with I was really interested in it. And I came back from the first meeting and I, and I saw Garmesh, my, uh, my co-founder. And he said, well, how'd, how'd it go? How was your first meeting? I said, uh, well, the topic was culture. He said, oh, that's too bad. It's culture, what a waste of time. I said, no, culture is how people make decisions when you're not in the room. Culture is how you scale your company. <laughs> and I got excited about it, got him excited. Then we started surveying our employees. And it's a classic net promoter survey. On a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to refer HubSpot to one of your friends and then why? And we did our first one there. We gathered it up. And people, turns out people did want to talk about culture and did want to build a unique culture. And then we built what we call our culture code. It defines the relationship between the company and the employee in a, in a rich way. And we've evolved that culture code over time. So culture is important. I think of companies, Dan, as, as having two products. They have a product for their customers that they want to make unique and valuable relative to their customers and, and unique relative to the competition. And if they have a great product and a great go-to-market, they'll pull customers in to retain them. The second product they have is their culture. And you want to make that culture unique relative to the competition and uniquely valuable to your employees. And if you can do that, it'll be like a magnet that will pull in employees and retain them. So that's kind of how we think about culture. Do you know what's funny is during this conversation, I actually neglected to assume I used to run a SaaS company. And so if you do run a SaaS company, then everyone knows HubSpot. And I actually neglected to even ask you to explain what HubSpot is in layman's term, which I do to everyone that comes onto the show, because we've been talking about customer experience, sales and marketing and stuff without actually talking about what you do and how you do it. So almost back to front, would you would you give us a succinct version of that and to make it relevant and timely now? What was your mission when you started and how has that developed over time? Our mission right now is super simple. It's we want to help millions of companies grow better online. And HubSpot started as a marketing app. We're, we're very much a modern CRM company now where everything from your website to your support system, you run on HubSpot and you try to create competitive advantage for your go-to-market on HubSpot as a platform. It's a very modern take on ye old CRM that's been a category that's been around for a very long time. And do you think that mission's changed at all since you started? The company's had two chapters, Dan. Chapter one was marketing, like help people get found online was the first mission of HubSpot and help, you know, do inbound marketing. And I thought that made sense. Inbound marketing made a lot of sense, still makes a lot of sense. I think the arbitrage opportunity today and the big opportunity for customers is to create not just a great lead gen machine. I think there's, there's a modern version of that. Inbound's a way to go on that. But the even bigger opportunity is to create this, these an experience disruptor, create a great end-to-end experience for their customers. And so along with that shift in the market, we've shifted from marketing to website, sales, marketing, service, the whole thing you can kind of run on HubSpot. And so we're, we're sort of halfway through our second chapter in HubSpot's history. Got it. Okay. So what would you say are some of the key insights and takeaways that you can offer to listeners who are looking to develop their own customer experience engines and mechanisms and systems in their businesses? When I talk to somebody who purchased HubSpot, became a customer, is delighted, and I ask them, why'd you buy? At the end of the day, what led you to purchase HubSpot over the myriad of other products out there? They'll say, yeah, your marketing is really good. You know, we saw you in social and we read some articles from you and we went to your conference, great marketing. Your salespeople, salesperson is great. You know, they helped me set up the premium version. They were super helpful. They said, but the real reason we bought is our friends were buying HubSpot and they loved it. And Susie, who's in our sales department, used HubSpot in her last company. It's very much word of mouth. And word of mouth has changed a lot over time. And it stuff just spreads a lot faster and more easily with them. Got it. And so basically, customer advocacy is really the, the new holy grail, the promised land. Very hard to measure. We obsess over net promoter score, as probably most of the people listening to this call obsess over it. So it's a decent proxy for it. But even if you can't measure it, it doesn't mean it's not 
true and happening. Like those conversations are happening well outside of your control, off of your platform, uh, on Zoom calls at the very moment. You're either getting buried by a customer or you're getting propped up by a customer. And so just know it's true. And if you want your flywheel to spin, your success is very much a function these days of the, of the happiness of your customer. It didn't always be that way. Like back in the 1990s when I was first starting my career, you could get away with a crappy product and unhappy customers because the customers never talked to each other. They couldn't find each other. Now, let's say you're in the software industry. I mean, just go to g2.com. You can see there's thousands of HubSpot's reviews on there and thousands of reviews of our competitors on there. Like, it's a much more transparent world. So looking back on your almost two decades, I guess, coming up to it uh, with HubSpot, what's been the most challenging period for you as a leader? What, are, like, what were the key moments where you really didn't know what to do and how did you handle it? I often find that I don't know what to do, often. People talk about imposter syndrome as like an intellectual exercise. I am like central casting, central casting for imposter syndrome. Yeah, same here. I have done about two posts on LinkedIn about imposter syndrome in the last week. Yeah, and I, to the point where I don't understand when people don't have it. It's like, how could, that feels unnatural. <laughs> how could that possibly be true? I would say that uh, you know, one comment. The other comment I would just say is, this has been the most challenging year. This has been incredibly hard and interesting. And I don't recall a time, we've been at it 14 years. This this has been the most challenging time. I think when we look back on it in the fullness of time, we handled it well, but we'll see. You know, Our customers and our employees and our partners will tell us uh, we're still in, in the middle of the war. We'll see when the, when the dust settles. This has been challenging. It's been super challenging time to be a CEO too. Like, there's none of this stuff, you're not prepared to do it. Like you don't study in business school, like W-shaped recoveries or woke leadership or any of this stuff. Like it's, it's, not, it's not in the course program. I'm in a CEO group with a bunch of SaaS CEOs, big SaaS CEOs. So all the big, like all the big ones, you know, beneath the, you know, Amazons and the giant ones. And we get on a call once a week, every Thursday night. And it just seems like every week there's something new that, that we hadn't seen before that we have to react to and kind of bounce ideas off each other on. That's been super, super helpful. For no other reason, Misery Loves Company. It's good to hear that other people are dealing with the same problems. And oftentimes someone will have a great idea that we can borrow. It's interesting that your CEO group is, is actually industry specific because mine isn't. And I tend to find that that's really helpful in a way that it's not industry specific because... 99% of the most helpful stuff isn't about work. It's experience sharing. And ultimately, most of the work support you get is from your team inside your company. So ironically, it's not the stuff you get so much. Do you find the same? Same. It's 90, 95% of what we talk about is people. It's not industry stuff as much as competitor stuff, product stuff, even marketing or go-to-market stuff, it's all people-related. It's about our employees, and it's about our teams, and about that kind of stuff. And we all have similar, I noticed we all have similar challenges. We're all, like HubSpot's, up, you know, just short of a billion in revenue, and a bunch of them are a little below us, and some are bigger than us. We're all having similar challenges. It's, it's been fascinating. In a year like this, which is completely uncalled for and you can't plan, you'd have done your planning session in November and by February, realistically, definitely March, it's out the window. Then, like you've already mentioned, the George Floyd murder, which brings up our whole other issue, particularly in America, where you realize the social injustice and then you are an employer with thousands of people, thousands of customers across the world. You know, it's not possible to say, guys, this is what we decided in November. Therefore, we're readying the ship and steadying the ship. So how do you, in these two big moments of change, essentially go back on what you've just said? Because it's important to. Yeah. So in late March, when the health crisis started and the economic crisis started, we flipped into war, wartime mode. One thing we did is we looked at our product roadmap, you know, what are we building this year? What's the plan for next year? We kind of ripped it apart and said, well, what can we do with the product to really help companies deal with this stuff? 
the good news for it's been brutal for so many companies. We are particularly well set up for this. Like our whole value prop is kind of ideal for a company trying to deal with this economic crisis. Like you're doing outside sales, you need to move to inside sales. You're doing offline marketing, you need to online marketing. You're doing outbound marketing, you got to move to inbound marketing. Like we built a platform to help people digitize and deal with this kind of thing. So there wasn't literally a single change we made to our roadmap, which helped. We made a bunch of changes to our packaging and our pricing to help our customers kind of weather the storm and to help new customers come on board at a much lower price and at a free level much more easily. Those were the big shifts we made early on. And then we obviously moved everyone to remote and tried to help everybody with remote. That was kind of the first set of changes. The second set was around when the George Floyd killing happened. I remember that week well. We, we're one of those companies that we, we're not, we don't run on an urgent clock. There's almost nothing that's ever urgent, like, oh, we're getting on the phone now. And people work a little on the weekends, but we tend not to have a meeting on the weekend. That was the one time I was like, all right, let's, you know, let's have a call on Saturday or call on Sunday. And we kind of had two groups set up, one group to deal with employees and what changes we're going to make with employees and another group you know, what are we going to do for our customers and partners? And over the course of like two or three days, we made a bunch of decisions and then rolled them out relatively quickly. I would say that was one of the prior moments I have of HubSpot in our history. The teams really got together. They were dealing with all kinds of personal stuff themselves, but they worked hard and came up with sensible solutions to really support our employees and then really support our customers and partners. And then we just, we hopped on a call with the, uh, with all of the employees. And I think we had a call once a week during that time, just update them of what we were thinking. And that served us pretty well back then. I'm super proud of, of my team and how they, they handled that. Like, obviously, because I, I'm obviously aware of, um, you know, like I, I said in the intro, you've got these uh, awards for, you know, diversity in particular with regards to gender diversity. So best CEO for women, etc. How has this moment in time made you consider, you know, what you as a company, uh, where you stand in terms of all diversity for not just the leadership team, but I guess the whole company and thinking about um, where you move forward? Yeah, I can just tell you, we've made a lot of mistakes here. One of the biggest mistakes we made was early. Like if you looked at HubSpot, 20 employees in, I hired a bunch of my buddies from MIT and we all looked alike. We all talked alike. And then from employees 20 to 100, you're starting to hire people you don't know. Again, like kind of a monoculture. And then all of a sudden you get a hundred employees and a black woman comes in and interviews. She's like, this is just not my tribe. No. And you're a tech SaaS company. So it's like, even in the niche, it's, it's more complicated. It's not like you're, you know, <laughs> you're literally serving tech pros. Yeah. We, we dug ourselves a giant hole. Digging out of that hole is very, very difficult um, and takes a concerted effort. And so the first hole we tried to dig ourselves out of uh, was on, really on the gender side. And I'll give you a, and we, we started working on that a long time ago, maybe five years ago. And the stat that's, that I'm most embarrassed about and proudest about is five years ago when we started this, 47% of our employees were women. 23% of our managers were women. Now that's just a bad stat. You know, why that can't be right. That's not like women are worse managers. I would argue they're way better managers than, you know, if I look at my team anyway. And so now that's 47 and 47. That was a big change. There was a series of plays we ran to enable that to happen over time. And it took time and it took energy and took concerted effort. And it wasn't something we just talked to talk about. We walked the walk and really did hard work on it. Like three of our seven board members are women. Uh, three of my eight direct reports are women. And they're fantastic. And that sort of started bleeding through the organization, but it took a long time. We were also way behind on people of color. And there was something we were working on. Honestly, we hadn't made a ton of progress on it. George Floyd's stuff happened in the... The moment I saw that, we had not been a political organization. We hadn't spoken about social causes or any of that stuff. I was just like, that's not political. That's just a moral issue. And it was just a wake-up call for myself and I think the whole industry and the whole society writ large. And I kind of look at that one. It's like people say that history kind of marches on. I don't think history marches. 
history crawls really slowly and then it jumps and history jumps in 1968 it was a messy awful year in the united states at least and it crawled until now and it's making a jump and it's messy and it's ugly and american politics are incredibly ugly but i think it's necessary and what's nice about this jump is someone like me can actually do something about it and weigh in on it and move the needle inside of HubSpot and really help. And so we're trying to not just talk the talk of it, but walk the walk on it. And we're starting to make some really good progress. on. I think we'll be able to move the needle on people of color in the same way that we moved it on the gender side. I mean, there's obviously the famous quote, which I think you were alluding to, which is, you know, there's centuries where uh, basically a decade worth of stuff happens. And then there's a decade where a century worth of progress happens. I guess it'd be really interesting, you know, if you've been given the opportunity to look at uh, your approach, you know, you said something just then, which I loved, which is, you know, this is not a political issue, you know, this is a, a moral issue. And yet, at the same time, um, obviously, there's a, a blog that's gone round from the Coinbase fa- founder, Brian Armstrong, who says the opposite, um, which is, you know, this is a political issue, and people come to work to do their best work. And uh, you can come work at Coinbase if you leave your politics at the door. And were you surprised, I suppose, not not him specifically, but were you surprised to see someone take that kind of stance? You know, it feels, you know, one of the stances that's quite bold there, other stances are, you know, things like we will never be a remote organization, therefore, you would want to work here if you want to be around people. Whereas even today, Stuart Butterfield's talking about, you know, how Slack, if they don't become a remote first organization, people will just go work at their competitors where they are. There's all these very strong opinions going around. Were you surprised to see such polarizing views? No, I'm not surprised about it at all, given what's going on in in society today. And I think smart people can disagree. Let me give you an, a, a different argument on this stuff. So I think it's morally imperative that HubSpot do something about this stuff and we're actively working on it. And I think we're gonna make huge progress. And part of my mission in HubSpot isn't just to build a big successful company, but to build a company my kid and hopefully someday my grandkids will be proud of and brag about. Like my dad worked for GE and BBN. I'm proud of that. You know, I kind of brag about that. I want my grandkids to brag about HubSpot. So part of our mission isn't just to grow and make money, it's to do something special that impacts our community. So I feel good about what we're doing about that stuff. I think our employees do too. I think a modern employee today has changed, is very different than when I joined the workforce. When I joined the workforce, my expectation of my company, it would never even cross my mind that this would be an issue that they would weigh in on. Employees today, and I'll tell you, employees today, they join, almost all employees join the workforce, and all, almost all employees, like myself and yourself, you're, we're both employees, you have your own personal brand, right? You've been curating it on TikTok or Instagram or whatever you're doing, LinkedIn. Then you join a company. You want that company's brand to kind of align with your brand. You want its moral compass to align with your moral compass. And so I think the expectation of companies is changed and employees have changed the way they think about it and i think the vast majority of employees want to work in a company that believes in diversity and inclusion i think the vast majority of employees wants to join a team that's diverse and i think if you've got a team of a bunch of white dudes that are middle-aged i think it's a repellent to white dudes that are middle-aged black people any people so i think i think the whole the whole thing is changing i think it's all been thrown up in the air i think wise people can disagree and it's something we think a lot about and we debate about a lot. And I, I feel pretty good that we're taking a stand on it. I disagree with what Coinbase does, but I respect his opinion. He's going to build a slightly different company. The employees will be different. Good luck to him. I guess, you know, one one thing that strikes me as particularly fascinating to find out from you is what the steps are that you're taking to try and um, address this. Because it's a very technical and challenging thing because it's an HR issue. It's uh, an issue involving people's livelihoods and the success of your company. So I'd love to know what kind of frameworks or decisions you've put in place um, that could inspire other people that are going through this challenge as well in all sorts of scale of company. Yeah, I think I would just say a lot of companies, I think, will talk the talk for a very short amount of time and then just go back to the old way of doing it. I think that's a mistake. This, this issue in particular is one that's, that takes concerted effort over not weeks or months, but this is a multi-year journey. Um, so I would encourage folks to think about it that way. We have run a series of plays that are multi-year. I think the play 
that I'm most proud of is we did a center at Howard University, which is a historically black college. And our VP, uh, senior VP of Biz Dev went there and it's a fantastic institution. And so we're partnering with them to teach our, their students about CRM, about inbound marketing, about all the stuff we're espousing. And so we're hoping to educate people and hire people like crazy out of that university. We're super proud of that. Running a series of other plays, but that's a play where we're putting big dollars to work and lots of intellectual capital and people to work, including mindset. Great. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it isn't, and this is the thing as well about making quick decisions in a moment like this, right? You've actually, to your point, it's got to be strategic and it's got to feel long-term. So I think there was quite a lot of interesting backlash as well about people putting out commitments to quotas, commitments to what they're doing, charters, etc. very, very, very quickly, which is a good sign that they haven't necessarily thought it through or weren't thinking about it before this happened. So I think it's a really good warning sign that this is a, a long-term journey. Okay, so when you look back at your time at HubSpot, what decision do you think you would have made differently to have had the biggest impact on where the company is today? Was there any one big moment? I don't think there was one big decision. We've made lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of unforced errors over the years. But just like there was no one moment in HubSpot's history that really propelled us, that was like, this was it. It's been the one step back, two steps forward. Uh, same thing on the downside. I'd say one of the things that we struggled with early was kind of picking a persona in the target market. Like, are we going to sell to start, you know, small companies or large companies or B2C or B2B? Like, really took a long time to get to that. And, you know, we mostly we sell 90% B2B. And we want to sell to startups and scale-ups, companies that are, you know, 10 employees to 1,000 employees, that kind of thing. It took us a long time to sort of narrow in on that target market. And that costs us a lot of time. And that is notoriously super hard. So I'm not surprised. Uh, one thing I've noticed about American CEOs and founders is much more self-aware around uh, mental health and much more considerate around the impact of mental health throughout the journey. What are some of the preventative things that you've built into your, your daily or your monthly routine and life? We talked about the CEO, CEO group as one thing, right? Having a support network. What are other things that you've done to make sure that you keep in tip-top shape? I'm, I'm a ruthless prioritizer. Like I, I put together a list of eight, let's say, priorities once a quarter, and I publish it to my team. And they kind of know, don't put something on that list that's, you know, you're not going to get his attention on such and such a thing. And so that, that helps me a lot. And every morning I wake up and I look at that priority list. I'm like, well, what am I working on that list? That's been helpful. Another thing that's been very helpful is, is one day a week. I used to do Wednesdays, now I do Fridays. No meetings, no calls, no human time. It's, it's my work from home day. And I've done it before COVID and after COVID. When it's my time to think and work on projects and collate information and read. Uh, otherwise, you're just like dealing with other people's problems, incoming slacks, incoming emails, incoming Zooms. So I like that day to think and to bake. That's been very helpful to me over the years. I love that one. Okay, wrapping up now, Brian. Um, I'm sad to say because I've really enjoyed it. But what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I don't think it's as much advice I've gotten as when people give me a little boost of confidence. Uh, I do have that imposter syndrome. So if somebody, somebody who knows me well, a mentor or somebody who knows me well will say, you're doing a great job. You're actually doing a great job. I know you think you're not. And I know you think you're an imposter. And I know you think you're screwing everything up. But empirically, if you step back, you're actually doing great. And like that once in a while, when people say that it really helps me. And I don't get that a lot. But I got that a couple months ago from a guy named Jack Connors, who's a uh, mentor of mine. He started an a advertising PR firm 100 years ago called Hill Holiday. And he's been my mentor for a long time. He kind of took me aside. He's like, I know you have a lot of self-doubt. You think you're messing this up and that up. And things like that, but just take a step back. You're doing pretty well. <laughs> that helped me a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, everyone needs that pat on the back and some validation along the way. 
Um, okay, so then what is the best piece of advice you could give to our listeners to inspire them through their journeys for the rest of uh, the rest of the decade to come? No pressure. I don't know if I have one great piece of advice for your listeners. I would say, though, the piece of this talk that I would take to heart would be this idea of try to turn yourself not just into a great product company, but a great experience company. Look as much at your business model and the way people buy your products. Watch your competition, but don't follow them. Disrupt them on the go-to-market side. Those are where the arbitrage opportunities, I think, exist today. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Brian. It's been super fun. Hope you've enjoyed it as well. Yeah, Dan. Thanks for having me. We want to make this podcast as good as it can be, and we need your help to do just that. So what do you think would make it better? What conversations should we be having that we aren't? What kind of guests would you like to see us interview that we haven't got yet? Tell us on social or email us on hello at secretleaders.com. Thanks. If you'd like to hear more leadership stories, we now send a weekly email newsletter. It takes less than a minute to read and provides some enjoyable factoids about great leaders so you can impress people with your knowledge and maybe even become a better leader yourself. You can sign up at our website, secretleaders.com. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. You know, there is sacrifice and it is tough and it's not for everyone. And I suppose, you know, I've always felt that entrepreneurship isn't for everyone. And we certainly shouldn't encourage everyone to become an entrepreneur. I think that's unhealthy and unhelpful. But I think social entrepreneurship is kind of a harder form of entrepreneurship in many ways because you're solving harder problems with less money. That was Alex Stephanie, the founder and CEO of possibly my favorite social impact business, Beam, which is looking to solve the homeless crisis in London and then further abroad, proving that solving the homeless crisis doesn't have to be done by a charity. Everyone can make money along the way and they can have a huge impact in changing how we view homelessness as an issue and how we deal with it. So tune in next week. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Charlie Stopford and bringing it all together, our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.